What is the word for the realization that your language never loved you? You are a red thing slash scattered sad map of sacrificial fires nightly appealing. Where is that word? It becomes necessary to signify the passing sound of friends who swear fidelity to oneself and in the same exchange refuse the weight of one's brother's body, collapsed and dragged forward by its will to keep running. That's poet Justin Philip Reed. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Justin Philip Reed was born in South Carolina, and he made his way to St. Louis to earn his MFA at Washington University. He lives in the Grove these days. Now, he published his first book of poetry earlier this year at age 28, and in November, that collection won the 2018 National Book Award for Poetry. If you're not up on the National Book Awards, they pick exactly one book by American authors in five different categories. His book is called Indecency. Reed wrote most of those poems while living here in St. Louis, and his identity as a black queer man in America is essential to his work. Given the success he's enjoyed at an early age, I was surprised to learn that he was expelled from three different high schools. So I asked him to talk about that period of his life. I had just a very difficult adolescence. I know that generally that's a hard time for everyone, but mine was particularly fraught because um, I was realizing my queer identity and then being raised up in a family and environment that weren't incredibly open to it. It just wasn't a topic of discussion or when it was it was, you know, ostracizing. Um, I had to come out to my mother like three different times before uh, we could actually go forth and deal with it. And she she just wasn't hearing it? She was rejecting it. Meanwhile, you know, I am also what they were considering like a gifted child. And so I am attending these classes that are supposed to be so-called advanced and um, actually feeling really distanced from like a certain kind of life that I wanted to have. I was kind of in love with my first boyfriend around the time that I also had to get put on antidepressants and I'm, you know, 13 years old. And so that whole conglomeration of just like conflicts ends up putting me in an environment where I am going to school with people who used to think that they know me, people that I grew up with who, upon realizing that I'm queer, made my daily life hell. And so I end up kind of becoming both withdrawn and then prone to um, outbursts of aggression. And that ends up finding me expelled from school, transferred to school, expelled from there, um, sent to live with my father, expelled there. Like, I just couldn't find a place in the world. It just, it took some time for me to figure out, you know, what was I going to be to myself? And that's always, like, a continual learning process, but it became more comfortable. It became um, easier to decide that I can choose my family and to also, you know, find the people that I want to kind of stick with and listen to and know that, you know, wherever I am doesn't have to make me, that I can just make myself. 
Can we talk about the book a little bit? Sure. Um, well, tell me about the title. In recent cultural memory, I see indecency or indecent and think of sexual impropriety of some sort sure. or just something that is vulgar in a way that's not allowable on the airwaves or something like yeah. that. I know that's not the only meaning contained in that word. When I think about a book of poetry that in many ways reflects a young man's impression of the United States mm -hmm. and it's called indecency, it, it makes me wonder where, where are you finding that indecency and what it means to you? The, the seed of my relationship to the word decent is from being around my mother who, you know, she raised three kids alone and it was hard to find like alone time. So she would sometimes just go back to her bedroom, shut the door. And it, because we were three children who would have friends come over all the time or she had friends come over, probably unannounced we would have to like holler down the hall to her and she'd say, you know, I'm not decent, so I'm not coming out right now. And she's trying to have her space. You know, I bring that into all of these other connotations of decency or indecency um, that I wanted to exploit, um, not for any one particular definition of it because my selfhood kind of works along that those lines there's so many ways for me to feel indecent or groomed for decency as this person who was born in that environment as a black queer man as someone who somehow ends up in this like kind of large university on the hill and knowing that i don't really have like the breeding to feel like i belong there and then the question throughout the book is supposed to be, you know, who actually gets to be considered decent or what are the different markers of like indecency or what is the what are the states like indecent acts against these bodies, this body, these per these people. It's supposed to be a little complicated and it's supposed to be a question and less um, anything that I could just answer for you right sure, now. Sure, sure. I understand that your time in St. Louis has affected the way you see and write about the world. And you said the history of the city haunts you in some ways. I know you've spoken about the threat of some histories being erased in mm -hmm. the city. And that enters, enters some of your work, I think. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that a bit for me? Or maybe if we want to talk about the poem Gateway. I think I would sooner talk about about a white city, okay, uh, which is an erasure of James Schuyler's Hymn to Life. It's a very long poem, Schuyler's poem. I'm not familiar with that term. Did you say an erasure? Yeah. What is that in, in so poetry terms? It, it kind of is what it sounds like. You would appropriate text by another artist or yourself, um, if you are so willing, and simply like cross out the things that you don't want and your work is whatever's left, but also is complicated by the decisions that you've made to omit these things and bring these things. So the, the, text, of, the text of your poem is essentially found text that mm -hmm. you've sculpted. Yes. Yeah. So I performed an erasure of Him to Life and wrote, wrote, quote unquote, about a white city as a reflection of my moving through St. Louis in what does feel a very haunted way. I live in the Grove, which has rapidly gentrified over the last few years. And, you know... Um, even even since you've been there? You feel yes, like you see that? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I know that I was part of a wave of gentrification. But since then, it's been 
um, even more explosive. And what I feel like walking through an area like that is um, almost erased myself that there was a point in which I felt like I could walk down the street and be fine and like one among a number where now maybe even only a year later I feel one isolated two singled out um, because the people around me have changed so very much um, that I become this kind of like asterisk for all of these different ideas um, that has to coalesce around like a single person because there are now so few of us and so then I look like the outsider where a year before the people who did not patron that neighborhood and now are all over it would have been the outliers and so it's a very vexing sensation because I can feel how um, I'm supposed to belong here and now I feel completely removed kind of out of time and it's hard to describe accurately but it is a feeling that I get kind of throughout St. Louis because I feel this shift. It's the evolution of white flight, which is now this return. This is something that I've also had to write about in essays, too. Um, like in one passage specifically, I was revisiting this time that I went to Yaki's on Cherokee. You know, they have or had, at least I haven't been there in a while, this decor where there are these, you know, amazing uh, artists of color on the walls, such as like Miles Davis and uh, Josephine Baker. But none of those people, or the people who like would have created a culture from which Josephine Baker and Miles Davis could arise, would have been in Yaki's. And it's very strange to me. There's this desire for this otherness, but also the rejection of it. But I've had a similar feeling like in other bars, like the Royale, sure. which one experience ends up in the book also. So it becomes people who made this place. What are you selecting from this culture to sort of import into your environment in a selective way mm -hmm. that is leaving the folks who would rightly be considered to be the inheritors of that mm -hmm. culture to not feel like they want to be there. We're completely ignoring the circumstances that creates that kind of art and artistry. Like to that that is what is considered the blight, you know. You can't bring jazz out of like the gentrified growth. Like it wouldn't happen. That was an art form that arose out of a very kind of like urban black and like formal cannibalizing culture. You know, all of these things that are available to an Afro-diasporic people who have to mingle because they are, like, bound in this space. That community creates that. You know, that's a really important component that gets overlooked is, like, just the simple fact of storytelling, the keeping um, all of these histories that tend to get erased or, like, all these other things get pushed to the side. Uh, but it's important to, that those stories continue to be told so that people can feel you know, not nostalgia, but that this these legacies are still very much alive. Maybe this is a good time to hear a poem from the book, if you don't mind. Uh, I'll set it up for you. This is Justin Philip Reed reading the poem, Please, and that is spelled P-L-E-A-S. Take it away. What is the word for the realization that your language never loved you? You are a red thing, slash, scattered, sad map of sacrificial fires, nightly appealing. Where is that word? 
it becomes necessary to signify the passing sound of friends who swear fidelity to oneself and in the same exchange refuse the weight of one's brother's body, collapsed and dragged forward by its will to keep running. It becomes necessary to signify the smear, the oil of him slicked across blacktop, how at night he disperses in shine and gas, you think the word is lapse the illusion to which one clings to keep from being both crazy and American, disrupted. Glitch and pixel, the eternally loading screen that is blackness waiting to be called other than absence of, lapse slash lap, which is, for the mother, a sign of the child having lived. Maybe your friends cannot exist within the glitch. There are lapses of justice, of memory, of time before the body is covered, before those left to mourn lapse into savagery, which the friends say they just cannot abide. Why did you want to share that poem? It's, for me, a very St. Louis-specific poem, at least in its um, like first generative moments. Like I wrote it in the aftermath of thinking about the murder of Michael Brown Jr. and also of you know, those ensuing moments of mm, wishing that people would understand the magnitude of this. And yet now all of these conflicts arise in which I'm realizing I have friends and acquaintances who probably would not have my best interest at hand. And that become this poem kind of becomes, I think, one of the seeds for like a building isolation in the book. And also there's a project that I wanted to have here of trying to just pinpoint the moment of utterance and all of these moments in which language fails us. And so that poem is specific for, you know, its focus on particular words um, and its focus also on failing to have space in language. I saw a quote from you where you said, English isn't my mother tongue. I don't have a mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Sounds like some ideas that overlap with what you're... Right. What, what, what do you mean by that? I'm in that, in saying that, I'm acknowledging that I, because I am from a colonized um, and enslaved people, that English is my received tongue. But I don't think that it is a language that, you know, was created, erected to reflect my own particular Afro-Dasperic sensibilities. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly having to make space for myself in it because it was not for me. In what manner do you mean uh, to say that uh, it occurred to you that your your friends may not have your best interests at heart? Because I felt that, you know, Michael Brown could have been me, could have been my brother, and to have folks out here kind of hinging on this like myth of him as like some iteration of a savage helped me to realize like how easy it is for people to not think and not grasp for nuance, but instead to only turn over these like received ideas from statehood um, and citizenship about like black people. And um, also it found me realizing too how wrongly like comfortable I had been in these like white institutional spaces where people 
perhaps pretend to understand certain elements of, I don't know, these different cultures and ways of living, but only on the page, only where it sounds good. Yeah. And um, this is an experience I can't relate to emotionally as, as a white man in America, but I've heard described a, a moment of sort of reinforcing one's sense of otherness in, in what, what, what had appeared to be a friendly environment. And there's either something in the news like Michael Brown's shooting mm. or, um, or, or some kind of comment that even someone who perceives him or herself to be an ally mm-hmm. um, indicates the gap that is still between different people's experiences. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like you're talking about something similar to that. Yeah. As cued in this case by people's response to Michael Brown. And saying, yeah. hey, that could have been me. That could have been my family. Is that how you would respond if it were, if it had been me? Right. I think a, a lot of these poems as um, documents of the, I mean, you spoke of otherness kind of like being precipitate in the moment like that. But I think what happened more accurately is that please i became more and more um like exponentially aware of how like just removed i was feeling from these spaces that i had been in so it wasn't like these different pinpoints it was more like accumulation sure um from which i've not since been able to look back um so that's kind of been my experience of growing up i say growing up like in my 20s but yeah in st louis like that's kind of the major pivotal role that it's had in my life also when you accepted your national book award in your speech you said i acknowledge the impossibility of a national book in america aside from the challenges of picking one what do you have in mind when when you say that to have a quote national book asserts that there is like one form of nation and that's simply not true there are so many people in the united states who are creating excellent art but for some reason you know it's not perhaps even legible by a mass reading population perhaps they are mixing languages in a way that people aren't prepared for and what we are seeing um with you know, the refugee crisis uh, has really complicated our ideas of border. And I think I have to take a moment and pause when I, you know, receive this accolade and think there's a lot that we still need to be listening to. And so I would argue that there are many national books. So it's not in no way meant to kind of like disrespect the, the National Book Foundation, obviously. You know, I'm so grateful for the recognition. I also wanted to, had to keep in mind that there are circumstances that like have left a lot of those voices still silent and that we should also be listening out for them. Well, so tell me what happens uh, when you win the National Book Award for something that you published at age 28, right? Mm -hmm. How how does your life change? Is it just limousines and champagne now or? uh, Oh, certainly not. (laughs) No. 
I mean, I, I still, suspected I still the answer work was in no, the service but... industry. Okay. You know, I work in the Central Western. But in retail or? Service, like food service. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Your work uh, grapples so directly with social issues as they happen to manifest in your, in your everyday life. Poetry is an art form, which I think is a little more removed from the great mass of people compared to even novels um, or certainly film or television yeah. music. Is there any tension between your concerns as an artist and a person and the place that society currently puts poetry? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> How so? I mean, art generally is undervalued. Um writing less valued and then poetry so much less valued the kind of like hoops that poets have to jump through to make a living i i find for one you know vexing because capitalism um it's difficult to be an artist under this like particular epoch but also i think it's just kind of obscene <laughs> um and then to kind of get around that, like you have to like perform this constant hustle so much so that you'd probably end up living so uncomfortably um, for as long as you do live. So it's something that we need to be talking about um, a lot more or for people to be upfront and say, hey, like, we don't actually care about poetry. We're only pretending to, in which case, you know, we'll have to figure it out. Why don't we close with another poem? Now, this is something you have pre-recorded. When we hear it, we will hear your voice tracked twice um, in conversation with yourself, in a sense. This is Justin Philip Reed performing his poem, The Fratricide. I was coerced into my brother's murder. You tongue us because I loved slippage. him, I was you made to live for him. Inside one and the other him, one. Sorry, him was that in the solution you? of bathwater, bleach, and shredded sorry, pages. Sorry. Watched his brown prune, watched the steam pirouette, the hostage blood beating at the doors of his palms. My eyes teared beneath the fumes, his eyes retreated with history's entirety. I scissored through the chemistry hissing his skin loose. I peeled away the glove that had snagged at the nail. I stopped to admire the pristine muscles built by some thousand signatures. I spread the bat wings over his his pecs, flipped him, and lifted the coriaceous back flesh. I said it looked nothing like a satyr, leaving the rust diamond of his trapezius to flicker. I cut away the whole taxed shadow of blackness, but left the pouch around his sex, which at last belongs to him alone. The rest dangled, drying on a wire. There was a full tilt river where the droplets fell. I was already wearing the skin of his skull, molding its contours to mine. The brown irises peering out of neither of ours. I shaped our lips to form the word breathe and coughed for ghost. I glimpsed him in a mirror and was lost in his hair. The dense serpentine net, stitching both of us closed. My own life still stuck there, a wad of fist and teeth. That was Justin Philip Reed performing a poem from his book, Indecency. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, 
And this has been Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. Our intro and outro music is by Eric Hall. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Cut and Paste is sponsored by Gemma, architects, planners, and designers.